Thanks a lot for coming, and uh, thank you uh, for inviting me uh, here today. Um, I'll be reading from my screen, so don't worry if I look down. I'm just, you know, um, going to do that. Um, I'll start by um, saying that a kind of summary of the talk is on the blog. So part of it, pieces of it, are, are here. So over the last 80 years or so, the history of the transatlantic slave trade and slavery has been vastly studied. Uh, historians have mainly focused on migration, abolition, and in the last 15 years on memorialization. They have tended to make a clear distinction between the history of the slave trade, exchanges, commodities and partnerships on the one hand, and life in the Americas on the other. Um, they also have looked at the social and cultural ramifications of the plantocracy. plantocracy. Uh, they have looked at the plant plantation as a rigorous hierarchical institution that coerced enslaved Africans into working and living in owners' lands in order to continue to produce goods destined for European markets. Other studies have looked at the way European tastes for exotic goods created and transformed social and cultural practices through the establishment of coffee houses, men and women's clubs where these were consumed. Scholars have also looked at the interdependence between consumerism in the 18th and 19th centuries and the development of the European middle class. What all these studies highlight is the close link between the transatlantic slave trade, slavery, and the transformation of European economies, Britain's among them. Very rarely did all these studies make the jump between those histories and memory, legacies and memorialization of slavery. In fact, historians have tended to avoid looking into the cultural, social, and social legacies of that past except to celebrate Britain and other European nations' role in abolition. The refusal to look at the negative legacies of slavery amounted, in my opinion, to a form of collective unconsciousness to use a term coined by French psychoanalysis and psychiatrist uh, Jacques Lacan. In this case, it means a form of amnesia that was characterized by the way many slaving ports looked at the history of the transatlantic slavery. Quite often, that partial amnesia, paradoxically, looked like a conscious decision to avoid addressing the participation of London, Bristol, Nantes, Bordeaux, La Rochelle, Le Havre, Lisbon, etc., in the slave trade. That particular paradox of collective unconsciousness, coupled with a conscious decision, could have been a compulsion. Lacan explained that trauma often leads to pattern of repetition. The repetition of actions is a painful and compulsive process. I might be underqualified to inquire into the European psyche and its links with compulsion and trauma in general, but I'm however qualified, I believe, to see patterns of historical amnesia. After European abolition in 1867, no academic books directly dealing with the history of slavery was written until the 1920s. Give or take a few exceptions, those books were about the economic impact of that trade rather than about the cultural, social, historical consequences of the transatlantic slavery. The end of the First World War had signaled a new world order, and Europe was not floating on the successes of the Industrial Revolution anymore. Imperial powers had been challenged and at war. The threat came from within. It came from Germany. In his seminal volumes, 
In Search of the Lost Time, novelist Marcel Proust explained how every time he ate a madeleine, a small cake, he remembered his grandmother and memories would come back to him. Memory needs a context and specific interactions. Perhaps war with Germany and its allies was Europe's Madeleine to remember colonial fights and the history of the transatlantic slave trade and slavery in particular. What was never forgotten in that history was the history of abolition. Sir Reginald Copeland's biography of William Wilberforce in 1923 came a site of memory, became a site of memory for a contested history related to slavery and abolition. I'm using the term site of memory here as defined by historian Pierre Nora. For Nora, books, just like monuments, can be sites of memory. For Copeland, abolition was the result of long moral and humanitarian battles. These views were not unanimously shared. Several historians have argued that Britain's industrial revolution was, if not initiated, and at least supported by the transatlantic slave trade and slave economy. C.L.R. James put forward the idea in the Black Jacobins, 1938, that France's 18th century industrialization rested upon the shoulders of slave labor and that Saint-Domingue, nowadays Haiti, was the jewel of the crown that made modern France. Six years later, in Britain, another author echoed these views. In 1944, Capitalism and Slavery, Eric Williams contended that through goods produced by slaves such as sugar, tobacco, cotton, etc., and with the development of shipbuilding industry, the insurance, the banking sector, and other heavy industries, the transatlantic slave trade, or slavery, helped finance England's industrial revolution in the 18th and 19th centuries. The abolition of the slave trade, he argued, was not the result of moral, religious, and humanitarian considerations as, as such. Investment and subsequent, uh, subsequent investment from the slave trade had already brought important uh, dividends that allowed the nation to turn to other industries. In other words, Britain did not need the slave trade anymore. Williams' theory ignited a controversy that is still ongoing. As crucial, as these debates were and still are, a very clear distinction was made between the history of slavery, the memory and memorialization of that era. My own research looks at both the history and memory of slavery as well as the links between the colonial past and its legacies in contemporary societies in Africa, Europe, the Caribbean and North America. So I will attempt to bring all these arguments together to show um, that we better understand the history of slavery Migratory flows from Africa to Europe and the Americas when we view history and memory as two sides of the same coin. I'm also suggesting that, that there were intellectual wars by proxy over racial superiority. In 1977, Seymour Drescher challenged William's narrative in his Econocide, British Slavery in the Era of Abolition. Drescher asserted that moral outrage in Britain led to popular protests and mobilization against the slave trade. Um, the, the thriving industry of the slave trade could have continued, he claimed, but Britain decided to stop that trade, leading to London econocide, meaning an economic self-harming uh, decision. North American and British historians shared similar views until Joseph Inikori's Africa, Africans and the Industrial Revolution in England was published in 2002, in which he claimed England's Industrial Revolution from 1650 to 1850 
um, resulted in several uh, um, incidents. He looked at the English economy over a long period of time, analyzing the various factors that may have contributed to the first industrial revolution. He then focused on the Atlantic economy, um, including North America, its growth, its links with other sectors before linking those points with the manufacturing sectors in England, including the north of the country, and in particular places uh, that saw the, the development of the textile industry, Manchester, for example. There are two major points to note from these various studies. First, although an uncomfortable discussion for many people, the question of race, not mentioning any of them, underpins the debate. C.L.R. James and Eric Williams were Trinidadians. While Joseph Nikore was born in Nigeria and obtained his PhD at the London School of Economics. These scholars have been accused of having a rather warped views of the past on many occasions. Second, their studies have put Africans and people of African descent at the center of European economic development, be they as captives or free labor during the post-abolition period. This is a crucial point that I will further develop in my presentation. Whilst these debates were happening about the transformative force of the transatlantic slave trade and the impact of slavery on European economic, social and even political scenes leading to the rise of the French and British empires, others were asking aligned questions about the effect of the slave trade on African societies. I will look at, at, at how historians have measured that impact from Eltis and Lovejoy's income per capita to Manning's loss of workforce theory. There has been a remarkable amount of research linking economic impact to social ramifications such as the development of polygyny in West Africa and the ways in which so-called indigenous slavery in Africa contributed to the underdevelopment of the continent. So let's look at a few facts regarding the transatlantic slave trade and uh, slavery. So let's ask ourselves why is there a controversy in the first place? Because after all, there, there, was, a, 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 um, there was slavery in, in Africa before the arrival of Europeans, and that um, fueled internal markets, um, domestic uh, use, and, and wars, really. Soldiers were employed uh, in Africa as well, um, as slaves. There was also the trans-Saharan slavery. Through the Red Sea, people, sea, people were sent, more than 9 million people uh, uh, sent to Muslim countries, Iran, Oman, the Persian Gulf. There was also, in the, it is a well-known one, Indian Ocean slavery, more than 4 million people uh, sent to Swahili ports to the Indian Ocean, Madagascar, La Réunion, Southeast Asia, um, India, India, Pakistan, Sri Lanka, and the, the, the Senate are still living there, the Binti communities, for example, in Pakistan. So, why focus on the transatlantic slavery? Well, it is because it's well documented to start with. Time scale, four centuries, be beginning 1501, ending 1867. It's measurable, we have lots of data. And it covers other areas, such as you know, uh, questions of race, gender, identity, power, memory, etc. So I just wanted to use this and to show you a few figures. If you look at the top, top bit, oh, I haven't got that thing. So. <laughs> if you look at here, from the beginning, the Spain and Portugal were dominating the trade. And I want to move straight to the end. How many people were deported? More than 12 million altogether. 
the, the figures are bound to go up as we found more data about these. But if we choose a few dates to try and see how things went, uh, let's look at here. Uh, 1756 to 1763. Who knows what that is? I think I'm in a classroom. Yes, go on. Seven years old. Exactly, seven years old. You can see, which is here, you can see that seven years old, Britain, there's a big jump in figures. Uh, the number of captives um, taken by British ships went up. And if you compare with their starch, arch enemies, the French, the figures are not that, that big. You had on one side Portugal and Great Britain, Portugal here, figures are more or less similar, and Spain on the other side, a big drop, as you can see. So war had an impact on those things as well. Uh, another important event, the American war, dates, anybody? 17? I went. Okay. Um, if you look at roughly here, you'll see the difference. The American, uh, where are they? The USA. You can see that there's a drop as well. The war, all the wars had an impact on the way the trade was conducted um, as well. It's just to give you a few uh, figures. Now, an overview of the slave from uh, 1500 to 1900. The bulk of people taken were taken across the ocean. They went to Brazil, but also to uh, well, West Indies and the Caribbean, a few to the United States. But as you can see, the most important number came from that region, West Central Africa. So we'll have a, a, a detailed view of that as well here. Uh, more about figures. This is a bit dated because it dates back to 2005, so the, the figures are up as well. Um, as you can see here, it's mostly people taken from Angola, 1 million that, from that region, some, um, the northern part. And then the next uh, place where captives were, captives were taken, the Bight of Piafra, uh, now there's Cameroon as well, 600, and then the 400, the Bight of Benin. So African coast here as well. Um, an important thing is that if you look at that orange bit um, for Angola, and you look at it here, you'll notice that 1800 to 1850, it's when the most number of people were taken. Actually, the most important volume of people taken in that, during that period was taken after the British abolition in the 19th century. Okay, so it's not because. Abolitions uh, happened in 1807 that all was okay, right? In fact, there was a, a kind of a vigor in terms of the numbers uh, uh, in the rest, uh, among the rest of the, um, the traders, Portugal, Spain, and France. I had fun trying to do this, so. How do uh, historians measure the impact of the transatlantic slavery? Okay, I've chosen just a few, not all of them. Patrick Manning's demographic changes and simulation model, 1990. He, according to his estimation, um, in 1700, West and Central African population was 22 million. At the growth rate of 0.5%, that population in 1850 should have been 46 million, but it was actually around 23 million. And he came up with a few conclusions. He said that there was indeed a decline in the population 
uh, that had an impact on the workforce and on women. So polygyny, it meant that you had more um, women who stayed in the continent than male men. So polygyny uh, became an institution you had fewer male who kind of looked after women, actually had few, several women, it became an institution and that was turned into social practices. Okay, there was also family structure that were uh, disrupted. A year later, income per capita developed by David Altis. Uh, income per capita, for those of you who've done economic history, uh, it's, it's, it's more or less um, the, um, the income per person divided by the population. And it, it's not completely <coughs> accurate to give you the wealth of the country or the wealth of people, but because you exclude children and those who are not working, but it gives you an indication of the, the kind of sta uh, living standards of uh, people in that country. So in West Africa, it was between 80 pence to uh, one pound in 1780. And it was relatively low in comparison to the European one, to Britain, for example, 11 pounds in 1780. But according to uh, Altus, the slave trade was actually a small part of African economy. And therefore, African export, meaning the number of people deported, um, did not have that much of an impact on African economy. That's uh, Altus's uh, view. Those were his views. A few years later, 2000, Lovejoy, uh, the transformation theory, he reinterpreted the income per capita thesis but came up with different conclusions. The low income per capita, according to him, meant that any slight change uh, in the economy had huge impact on those regions. Uh, he added Manning's findings that we just saw, plus new data, and came up with the idea that it was social dislocation and death rates in Africa that actually changes our, the, the whole picture. In other words, Africans experience slavery not only in uh, the Americas, but also in Africa. Uh, emancipation also came later, which meant that uh, slavery actually had tragic uh, consequences uh, on uh, African economy. Nathan Nunn's extraction model. Um, for, the, for, for Nunn's, extraction means actually ex, uh, extracting populations and, and sending them across the oceans. You have extraction that led to social instability, that led to the collapse of institutions, that led to underdevelopment. So I'm going to go back a little bit about uh, Nunn's extraction model. So he showed how there was a correlation between slave export and economic development, and in these cases, underdevelopment. The analysis is done in the long durée as well, from 1400 to 1900, and he also used Klein, Lovejoy, Curtin, and many others' uh, studies. So all these, those historians have looked into the volume of slave exported from each country in Africa, and they mainly use ship records. So the first conclusion they came up with was that the most developed areas were also the ones that were targeted for the slave trade, perhaps because of the long trading practices um, and sophisticated institutional apparatus in these areas. And that is interesting because this somehow already dispelled the myth of unorganized African tribes. Secondly, they looked at the methods used to acquire slaves and showed how internal warfare initiated by European demand for slaves, uh, for captives, raiding, kidnapping, led to state disintegration and ethnic division. 
um, and I'm talking 17th, 18th and 19th century. The collapse of institutions led to further political division and fragmentation. Those scholars used estimations, historic accounts that gave them information about daily lives, the weather, famine, trade, etc. And as none concluded, extraction prevented the, quote, formation of broader ethnic groups leading to ethnic fractionalization. The slave trade resulted in the weakening and underdevelopment of political structure, end of quote. Now, another group of historians has uh, looked at the effect of polygyny, uh, polygyny had on African societies, mainly from political, social, economic point of view. I won't develop that aspect here, but I want to highlight that these are studies that have been done over a long period of time as well. And they, just like the previous ones, they, they use data available, ship records, accounts, and from them, they constructed simulation models with variables that make projections to see if those projections align with contemporary or rather current uh, economic and social realities. So, for example, here we have um, between uh, 1545 to 1864, in the Bight of Benin, 70% um, of people who were taken were male, 73% here. Uh, big jump here, Windward Coast, which is between Libya and um, Ivory Coast, 65% were male. Lower number of female, however, we know from other studies that women tended to be shipped over the ocean, but the Indian Ocean on the other side of the world. So it, it doesn't mean that there were more, uh, much more uh, uh, females staying in Africa because actually some, many of them were sent across the ocean as well. Okay. So um, I want to move to a very another very important point. Studies in these areas also continue to remove the question of race from the equation, rarely questioning the very need to speculate solely on what would have happened to economic development in Africa if the transatlantic slave trade had not taken place. It is about what Europe could have achieved with or without enslaved Africans as commodities, labor, and reproductive, and we tend to forget that, reproductive tools. It is also about Africans unable to start economic revolution, allegedly. I think it is therefore important to get race out in the open, in a sense, by explaining that as trade grew and as Europe became wealthier, so did theories about hierarchies, eugenics, and the equation between intellectual abilities and the subjugations, subjugation of Africans. So while abolitionist William Wilberforce was explaining how those children of nature should be protected, thus utilizing the very popular notion of the noble savage of the 17th and 18th century, and I think Ryan can talk more about that better than me, British historian Edward Long, um, a so-called expert on all things Jamaican, was explaining in the 18th century how he heard of a relationship between an ape and an African woman. The pro-slavery American surgeon Josiah Knott also contended that the further one traveled north of the equator, the fairer the skin got and the higher the level of intelligence developed. These ideas were also supported and developed by French diplomat um, Arthur de Gobineau in an essay on the inequality of the human races, 1853-55. 
the development of so-called scientific racism that had started in people such as uh, Dutch physician Petrus Kamper in the 1770s was widely accepted in the 18th and 19th centuries. Now, what, what about the links with, the legacy, with um, contemporary issues and the legacies of slavery? In looking at numbers, it may be easy to forget that these unnamed groups, captives and slave Africans, were people who interacted with slave catchers, merchants on African coasts. I'm particularly interested in the type of relationships that grew from those exchanges, and I want to look at various kinds of stories that move us from economic considerations to everyday links and sometimes cohabitations. Quindinga of Matamba in Bundu, present-day Angola, for example, is an interesting, interesting one. Her life highlights the complexity of the relationship between Europeans and Africans. Sources are scarce, and views about her are contested, but a few studies provide us with a clear understanding of what happened to her. 17th century Mbundu state was not a good place for a woman ruler. Joseph Miller used various studies to show that Ndinga appears on records around 1621 20, and 22. She arrived in Angola as an emissary of her brother, the ruling king. A couple of years later, her brother dies under mysterious circumstances. She claims the throne despite opposition from um, Bundu farmers and other male leading figures. As early as 15, um, 1575, the Portuguese have managed to occupy the coast in Congo and Rwanda. So when Zinga came into the picture in 1621, the Portuguese were posing serious threat to all kingdoms that did not abide by Portuguese rules. As an emissary who was keen to protect the Mbundu kingdom, Njinga became a Christian and managed to sign a peace agreement with the Portuguese. Unfortunately, in 1624, the next Portuguese governor came back to the, on the promises done by, by Portugal and refused to remove the Portuguese fortress from uh, Njinga's land. Both parties started a war that only stopped when the Dutch, who also had been attacking Portuguese posts, managed to drive them out of Rwanda. The Portuguese did come back and got rid of the Dutch, so Nzinga returned to them in forging alliance in 1650. She died in 1663. Other relationships between Europeans and Africans were less blatantly confrontational. I've looked into the position of those who acted as mediators between the two, the two continents. This is an abstract about information provided by captains to Liverpool merchants in 1788. Quote, Observation on the conduct of mulatto and black children who had been educated in England on their return to their native country received from Mr. Matthews, one of the delegates from Liverpool, John and James Cleveland, mulattoes and sons of Mr. Cleveland, who formerly resided upon the island of Bananas as trader. They were both educated in England. John the eldest had been dead for some years. James is now living upon the bananas and is a, cap a capital trader. His manner of living is nearly comfortable to the European custom. Andrew White Cantor, a black son of Mr. Cantor, the head man, or as he's generally styled, King of Baggers, was educated in England. He is in some measure sunk into the general indolence of his countrymen, but still retains a fondness for the dress and behavior of the whites." End of quote. Bananas Islands, the southwest of Freetown, nowadays Sierra Leone, and Bagos were living in nowadays um, Niger. 
There are more details about these people, but what this shows is that mixed-race children in the children of African monarchs were sometimes sent to England to be educated and came back to act as mediators. They generally occupied comfortable positions uh, in African coast. They were mostly men. As for women, there are a few studies done about the role, their role in that story. Pernille Ibsen looked at Gao women in Ghana, well, nowadays Ghana, and at the ways in which they navigated complex worlds. Gao women descended from long lines of mixed-race women who had been marrying uh, Danish traders and governors in, uh, on the Gold Coast since the 17th century. Most of them spent their lives in Africa and enjoyed privileged positions, not as courtesan or concubines, but as wives and intermediate, mediators. Sorry. There are many more interesting stories that are worth being told about those Afro-Europeans. These populations of mixed parentage were not necessarily were not considered Europeans. They nonetheless constituted a special group that helped shape Afro-European identities. To conclude, the history of the transatlantic slavery is complex and paved the way to an even more complex relationship between Europe, Africa, and the Americas. European economies developed from the 17th and 19th century through the exploitation of African captives, users' labor, reproductive tools, and commodities. Racial considerations were not what ignited the trade, but they, came, they became a justification for continuous subjugation. Historians, and in particular economic historians, shied away from that debate about racial hierarchy, eugenics, and other theories about so-called scientific racism. Incidentally, eugenics um, research about alleged European superiority proved to be inconclusive, if there was any doubt. Um, economic dominance was, however, used as empiric evidence for precisely what science hadn't been able to prove meaning Europeans were in essence superior because they won the economic battles since the 15th century, which in the history of mankind is a rather short period, I must add. The legacies of that era are damaging um, till this day. Economically speaking, the era of the slave trade followed by colonization in the 18th and 19th century ignited an even longer period of economic dependency. Just to move away from Britain, Eight independent Francophone African countries are still using the franc CFA. The French Treasury directly guarantees the currency, even though France does not use the franc anymore, but euro. Not necessarily a bad thing, argued the IMF, but monetary and economic dependency go hand in hand in these cases with what is known as France Afrique, a dubious informal agreement between the Elysee Palace, Palace's African cell, yes, there is a thing as an African cell, and ambiguously elected African leaders. So a heavy-handed management of African politics, all coming back from that long period. It's traceable, actually. The era of the transatlantic slavery also brought about the question of memorialization and how the past should be remembered, as we have seen with recent debate about Rhodes must fall, Holston must fall, Leopold must fall movements. Memory and memorialization are interesting, in my opinion, interesting barometers to gauge social priorities, imperatives, demands, and to understand where we are as people. As a historian, I welcome the debate, even when it is a controversial one. Thank you.